2021 marks 1500 years since the birth of Columba, one of Ireland's three patron saints. Yet for most of us we know so little about the man. Therefore it's wonderful that Dr Bruce Ritchie, who's written an excellent biography of Columba, is able to join us for two interviews to talk about the man and his legacy. Well, Bruce Ritchie, we are so grateful that you have been able to give us your time and to be able to talk to us and let us know a little bit about a man who, uh, whose name is familiar, but we know so little about in terms of what actually happened in his life. And so we're thankful for the research you've done, for the writing that you've done, and now we're really looking forward to being able to just learn from you. So before we do though, maybe it would be important for you just to tell us a little bit about who you are. So before we talk about Columba, maybe we'll start and you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about especially your your ministry experience in the past. Right, thank you very much, Andrew. Um, I'm basically a, a Church of Scotland minister and uh, for most of my um working life, I've been a parish minister, three parishes in Scotland, uh, firstly down in the southwest in, in, in Galloway, and then we were a number of years in Perthshire, and then before I retired, we were up in Rossshire in, in Dingwall, just a short distance north of Inverness. But as well as that, um, I went to Malawi for five years uh, as a mission partner, to Zumba Theological College, training ministers for mission in Central Africa, uh, specializing in systematic theology. And that was an interesting experience in an African context. And then also for the past 13 years, I've been teaching at uh, Highland Theological College, which is part of the University of the Highlands and Islands, uh, and teaching Scottish church history and uh, understanding worship as well. And then since retirement, um, trying to put down on paper um, much more of what I've been thinking about over over the years. Well, uh, we're, we're grateful that you have begun to do that. We look forward to seeing what else is produced. I can't, can't think of uh, two more divergent uh, fields of ministry than Malawi and Scotland. That in itself would make for a good conversation. But now we want to really... Uh, pick your brain over uh, this man, Columba. Columba is one of our patron saints in Ireland, along with Patrick and Bridget. We, we know he must be significant in some way, but uh, why, in terms of the history of the church, is Columba such a significant character? I think I think it's partly because, um, and this isn't to sort of undermine Columba's reputation anyway, he had a very, very good publicity agent. Um, a Domnan that, that wrote The Life of Columba, a very famous book, um, has meant that Columba has come to the fore and has been to the fore throughout history because of a, a, a literary connection, uh, much more than many other Irish, Scottish saints that could maybe quite equally have, have been prominent in the same way. But even allowing for that, um, Columba was significant, I think, because, I mean, for half his life, of course, he was in Ireland till he was about 42. And he tended, his work tended towards consolidating the work of establishing Christian faith, Christian communities 
that had progressed at quite a rapid pace since Patrick's time. So it involved that important work of, of consolidation. But certainly after he came to Scotland, he, he had a huge impact. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later with establishing the community on Iona and then working out from there eventually Iona influenced North of England um, and many other places um, as well. Interestingly, when I was in Malawi, um, one Sunday we went to consecrate or, or to dedicate a new church in Blantyre, a huge big church, and it was called St. Columbus Church. So away out there in, 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 the, in the tropics, they were even there taking the name of Columba. I'm sure it was a lot warmer than the climates Columba originally experienced. We, we, we had to go around the church three times dressed in full clerical robes, and it was hot. Well, uh, the world that Columba ministered in was so different to our own. And I think that part, in part that's sometimes where we, in 2021, struggle to relate to some of these men. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about, first of all, what Scotland was like uh, before uh, Columba arrived and that mission really uh, progressed. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think I think we're all aware that, of the fact in, in, in that time, you know, certainly around the islands of Britain and Ireland and so on, um, sea travel was a lot easier than land travel. So, you know, people often talk of the, the super highway of the sea. Uh, and so away from the coastal areas, it was pretty wild country, pretty rough country. But at the time, in, in terms of Scotland, um, in the southeast of Scotland, you had one group, which was mainly influenced by the Angles, part of Northumbria that really sort of stretched up towards the Lothians. In the southwest, Galloway, you had what were called the Britons, going up to about Dumbarton, Rock, Glasgow area. In the north, you had the huge sort of Pictish area, very sort of undefined but, but was coming, becoming more consolidated. And then round about Argyle, in what was called Scottish Dalriata, you had this um, almost a colony from the north of Ireland uh, of Dalriata, with its twin colony in what we now know as Ulster itself, that connection. So these four basic groups that were there, three of them had a Christian presence of some sort before Columba. And the Pictish area may have had more of a Christian presence than what we are aware of, although scholars argue about that. So there was a Christian presence in Scotland before Columba. He, he wasn't, as many think, the first Christian missionary to Scotland. There were a lot of very fine people before that, going back to Roman times and so on. But certainly he became the big name. Oh, I, I want to... Uh... Dalriada uh, Grammar School in the town that I grew up in. Yeah, so so that the connection uh, across the two countries is very familiar. Um, one of the other aspects that I think would be helpful for you to talk a little bit to is the Christianity that marked uh, Columba and others of the time, that early Celtic Christianity. How would you describe it to somebody uh, today, uh, an, an evangelical Christian, how would you help us to begin to understand what that Celtic Christianity looked like? That's a good question, Andrew. And I think that the word Celtic brings its own problems today because people have a modern notion of what Celtic means. Mm. 
that doesn't always resonate with what we would be thinking about in the 5th century, 6th century, 7th century. Because, I mean, there was the big, what we call the big Celtic revival of the 19th century. And then all the sort of culture that came out of that, that the people associate with um, that sort of Celtic um, atmosphere. So in a sense, we have to put the modern notion of Celtic culture to the side, because it's a sort of romanticised version that people then read back into Columbus' time, and then they give Columbus the sort of values, attributes, views, etc., that a Celtically inclined person of the 21st century would, would have would have today. I think in terms of Celtic Christianity, in terms of the Celtic Church, um, I think another thing we have to watch is that we don't overemphasize the contrast and perceived difference between the Celtic Church and what we call the Roman Church on the continent, the one that was um, really based around the, the, the papacy um, from, from Rome and so on. In Ireland, in Irish Christianity, what we might call Celtic Christianity, the basic unit was the monastery of, whom, of which the abbot was the um, controlling person. Whereas in continental Christianity, the basic unit was the diocese in which the bishop was the controlling person. There were bishops in Ireland too, but they were not the power figures that they were on the continent. And then each monastery was independent and it had strong ties with the local community, the local tribe, the local people group, often taking its people, its abbots, its leaders, its monks from that particular people group. And so in the Irish church, the early Celtic church, there was, there was actually tremendous respect for Rome. And we see that in the likes of the, the writings of Columbanus and so on. Although he also said that we are, we're independent. We respect what we nowadays would call the continental Roman church. We respect it, he said, because it gives tremendous leadership. But we are functionally independent of it. And that would have been Columbus' view as well. And in the Irish Celtic church, because it was based more locally, because it was based on a local monastery, because it wasn't really in a hierarchical system, of, of, of bishops and archbishops, etc. There's a huge emphasis on local initiative. That there's no need to refer upwards to get permission to do some new mission, for example. You felt God was leading you that way, so you just went for it. And so there's this energy created by these tight units that were independent, that were organized on their own, and could take initiative by themselves. Well, I think that sets us up really well to talk about Columba. I would say the majority of people here know that he went to Iona and there was mission involved. But beyond that, uh, even there you mentioning he spent those first, uh, you know, it was in his mid-40s that he left. I think even that in itself would take many of us by surprise who have a very basic understanding of his life. Maybe you could just... Uh, tell us the story of Columba. Okay, very briefly. Um, as far as we know, according to the annals of Ulster, etc., etc., we believe that he was born in Garton in the year 521, which makes this year the 1500th anniversary of his birth. 
His family um, had, we believe, aristocratic connections, although the more we read into that period, almost everybody claimed to have aristocratic connections. Um, because he was a first child, he was given to a monastery for his upbringing when he was just an infant. And again, that was quite a common practice at the time. And he was trained in a series of monasteries uh, where he was first ordained as a deacon and then he was ordained a priest. He, he never, of course, became a bishop, which would be the third level in, in, in sort of um, church life in, in Christendom. So he worked in Ireland, um, a peripatetic ministry, really, um, but quite a powerful figure. Um, he, he was a confident sort of person. He related well to power figures. He was comfortable in that kind of environment. And so he set up quite a lot of churches until the year, probably 563, when he suddenly goes to Scotland. Now, why did he go? Um, the Annals of Ulster say, quite simply, he set sail in the 42nd year of his age. Doesn't say why. And a dominant in his life doesn't say why. There is the theory, of course, that because of a dispute, he caused a battle in which thousands were killed and he went to Iona or, or he left uh, the north of Ireland uh, as part of penance. Um, there's very little early evidence for that tradition. But, of course, that might be a cover-up because he became such a holy person. Bede said he just left to evangelise the Picts, um, the respected scholar Marie Herbert suggests that he left Ireland to break away from, for, from tribal associations. Others say that he went to help the people in the new colony of Dalriata, which was uh, crumbling a little bit because of pressure from the Picts. And we don't know why. It may have been a midlife crisis. We're not sure. But he left in 563 and then... Within a year or a couple of years, he moved with his group. He went with a group of friends, probably a dozen or 20, and they established themselves on Iona um, under the, the rule of the king of Dalriata. Of course, they were his subjects. And then from that base began to spread out into the north of Scotland um, in, in evangelism and in, and in mission. He had a strong connection with the kings, the various kings of Dalriata, who said before he was the kind of guy who got on well with power figures. Um, so he had that particular gift, that particular ability, and continued that ministry uh, and, until his death in 597. I think in short, that would be Columbus' life. Did, did he ever meet Nessie? Well, um, the earliest recording of uh, Nessie was when Columbus was going to meet King Broody of the Picts. And um, Adonim says that in, in, in the River Ness, not the Loch, but in the River Ness, he met this water creature. And uh, by making the sign of the cross, the creature fled. So that is always marked in Scottish history as the first recorded um, sighting, as it were, of of Nessie. And, and, and we live here quite close to Loch Ness and in the local um, centre that occupies quite a big bit of the story. If you've been enjoying the Saints and Scholars podcast, please 
uh, subscribe, to follow our content. Next week, we'll be joined once more by Dr. Bruce Ritchie, who unfold a little bit more about the impact Columba have in Scotland and on Ireland, and to tell us a little bit more about the theology that drove the man. Oh, 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 oh